that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I'm John Viola. We have a very special two-part episode in store today. Part one coming to you now, part two next week. One that I am very much looking forward to for many, many reasons. Not the least of which is that it deals with some timely conversation around uh, a topic that I'm looking forward to the discussion on. And of course, above all else, because I get to have that discussion with some of my closest friends. Because this week I am joined by our associate producer, Miss Stephanie Longo, the queen of our cuisine, Miss Rosella Rago, and the notorious P.O.B., the Italian-American Wikipedia himself, maybe we call him Wikipedia from now on, Mr. Patrick O'Boyle. That is a great name. It's good, right? Wikipedia is great. We need No, we need t-shirts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. John, we need a t-shirt. John had me come off. This is an 8 o'clock recording. We had 19 minutes of a conversation. If we could put it on there, it'd be our greatest podcast episode ever. But <laughs> Thankfully, we're not. <laughs> no. But we can't. We can't. We can't. Stephanie exonated, but it would have been the greatest conversation ever. Well, there's a reason we, we had this great conversation, and it's because our associate producer herself, Miss Stephanie Longo, who joins us as a central character in today's episode, also had some wonderful news over the weekend, and uh, we are happy to announce to our listening audience here in the great big family of the Italian-American podcast that Stephanie is uh, engaged to be married and uh, coming up hopefully soon. We're, we're trying to convince her to set this wedding date as quick as possible. So, Stephanie, congratulations from all of us. Viva gli Yeah. Auguri, auguri. Grazie. I am so excited. Sean made the best proposal ever. Um, I, I am rarely hold, hold speechless. On. Hold on. As I, as I have a piece of Gascavala mortadella in my mouth, that's choking as I say this. <laughs> tell them more where he proposed to. Okay, I will tell the story of the proposal because I think it's beautiful. And I think listeners who know me will be like, that is the perfect proposal. So we actually were in the Catskills this weekend and come to find out that he wanted to propose while we were in the Catskills. But some things just did not work out. So when we were in this town called Neversink, I stopped at the general store and bought him a candle that I was going to give to him. He dropped me off back at my house when we got home and for whatever reason, I forgot to give him the candle. It was on my dining room table and I didn't realize that I didn't give it to him when he was leaving. He was going over to the University of Scranton to do some things because he's in charge of National History Day. That's going to be this coming Saturday. And the University of Scranton is one of the main locations in Pennsylvania for this. And um, I texted him. I was like, hey, you left the candle. And when do you want me to get this to you? And we just chit chat a little bit. And I said, all right, I'm going to come down to campus and just bring it to you. No clue what was about to happen. Get to campus. He lets me in St. Thomas Hall. That's where his office is. That's actually where I, as an undergrad, had most of my classes as well. We get to his office. We're just chit-chatting a little bit. And he says to me, Steph, you need to stand up. And I'm like, why do I need to stand up? And he goes, so I could get down on one knee. Yeah. (laughs) 
I put my hands over my mouth. Oh. He had to tell me this story because I could not even remember it. I was so shocked. He took me so off guard. Uh, I put my hands over my mouth. He said that my eyes were as big as saucers. I was crying. And before he could even ask, will you marry me? I kept saying, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I was just so excited. I didn't even look at the ring. He was like, well, wait, I got to get the ring out. I'm like, hold my hand. <laughs> I was just so excited. Eventually, I ended up looking at the ring, and it's stunning. Um, he found an antique ring from the World War II era. Um, he knows I love antique jewelry, and he went and found the perfect ring. It could not have been a more perfect proposal. Um, where his office is at the University of Scranton is actually where I had a lot of my classes. It used to be a classroom. So my alma mater, his current place of work, uh, just an amazing story. And then we were sitting in his office. We called you guys <laughs> and we called Brendan. Like we were called, obviously we called my mom first. We called his parents, um, then called you guys. And I've been on cloud nine ever since. So Sean, I love you. And I'm so excited. Ah, uh, I almost died. I get five in the middle of my macaroni. I got eight. My phone blows up. Everybody that works for John starts calling me. Says, oh my God, God forbid what happened, right? Why would I think that she went and got engaged in a, in a school classroom? It just never occurred to me, right? You know that Italian, it, when all the wrong people call, I said, Oh my God, somebody's dead. <laughs> well, first of all, you were eating brajol. Uh, that's true. Correct. We correct. To call my, you. Bro- my brother had texted you that information. Yes. And then all of a sudden, I said, oh, my God, Brandon called and Stephanie called and Brandon called. The guy said, oh, my little God, who's that? Jesus. And I pick up the phone. She's like, I'm getting gay. I was like, that was the last. That was the furthest thing from my mind. <laughs> you were waiting for disaster. <laughs> I was waiting. I, I, I said, why would all these people call me on a Sunday afternoon? Some, of course somebody's dead. So there's some horrible tragedy. You were on Doom Patrol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're just like, oh, my God, I got engaged. Yeah. Wow. And it was almost at that Italian letdown. Like, gee. <laughs> Nobody's dead. <laughs> Yeah, but we were so happy at that point. It was just crazy. And I mean, I called you guys once I came too. my mother thought we were pranking her. She did not believe that we got engaged. She was just like, no, you two are joking. I thought he went and had a talk with her. He did. He went and had the talk with her, but she didn't think it was going to come this soon. She thought he was going to wait a couple of weeks. Hey, life is short. Why wait? Exactly. So he proposed it was beautiful and he's a podcast listener now so he listens to uh, to us every week so he's going to no, be listening no, to this no, episode no. he says yes. he listens every week oh no he does <laughs> listen every week Lady. i swear to you he does because he even tells me what he liked about the episode many people say they listen and then you ask them and then they're blank like what was your the favorite episode we've had lately uh, uh <laughs> that's true you know, yeah. they, he, you know, what, he you has listened that? to uh, every one of them Hey, at least one of us will have a spouse that listens to the podcast. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Has Nicole ever listened to an episode? Uh, like on purpose? Probably not. Yeah. I, I would say probably not. No. I think, you know, if I'm editing with my headsets off or maybe I have one on to check for something, but I think it highly unlikely that she has actually put earbuds in her ears and said, let me listen to my husband, Pat, Rosella, and the gang. That, you know, she gets enough of us in real life. I think she's more than fine. <laughs> what did they say? What did our Lord say? A prophet is never appreciated in his own kingdom. <laughs> that's very true. Absolutely. More. I mean, that's kind of paraphrasing. Well, it's interesting that you have those people in your life who tell you, you know, they listen to the show and you ask them to recount 
what was the last episode, and they always go back to like some of the bigger ones, right? Like, like the safe yeah, bet right. episodes. Uh, oh, the one on Malokia. You hear that a lot, which was a great episode. Oh, the and, one from yeah. the one from two years ago. Yeah, correct. Yeah, you yeah. get like you know, oh, or the one on Italian weddings. Like you know, it's kind of safe to guess that we talked about this stuff. And I actually think tonight's episode is going to rank up in that category because, like Pat said, we're recording this late on Monday night for an early release on Tuesday because we wanted to wait for last night's Oscar broadcast because included in that 94th Oscars, whatever it was, was a three-minute retrospective on 50 years of The Godfather, which is mind-boggling to think that The Godfather has now been in the popular consciousness of not just the world, but particularly Italian America, for 50 years. And so we waited, and uh, I don't know about you guys, I didn't actually watch the... Did any of you guys watch the broadcast? We, we watched the clip that Stephanie sent us, but... No, I've, I've never... In 47 years, I've never watched it. Mm-mm. Yeah. It's not my thing. Ro? Yeah, I used to watch the Oscars, like, when it didn't suck. <laughs> now, now it's no good. That's the best thing that's happened at the Oscars in years, is that Will Smith slapped somebody. The Oscars has, has been terrible. It has been terrible. It really has. Yeah, unfortunately for the uh, tiny little retrospective on The Godfather, it got outshone last night by some bizarre events. But I, I haven't watched the Oscars in years, but I did want to see this three-minute clip, and it was, you know, it was what it was. It was three minutes of scenes from The Godfather and random quotes from The Godfather. Then Francis Ford Coppola came out to say thank you with De Niro and Pacino by his sides, and knowing that this was going to be included and recognizing that everybody's kind of celebrating 50 years, Stephanie and I started talking and thought it'd be a really great opportunity for us to sit down and really reflect on 50 years of how this film has impacted our community, our psychology, our self-identification. And one of the reasons I thought it'd be a lot of fun is because as we were talking about doing it, Stephanie pointed out that she had never seen it and resisted seeing it because her fear of stereotypes being present. And I encouraged her to watch it. So, Steph, you actually watched it a couple of nights ago, right? Yes. Sean is a film expert. Um, he loves movies. He's a movie buff. So he said to me, I will watch it with you. And I was like, I don't want to see the scene with the horse's head. So he was wonderful and fast forwarded through that for me because I would cry. But I got to see it for the first time on Saturday night. Stephanie, that's only a movie. They didn't I kill the horse. I know it's only a movie, but I was <laughs> Okay, Pat. You have known me for how many years now? You know that I will cry if something happens to an animal in a movie. I am just oversensitive like that. Well, beyond the fast-forwarded horse's head, you watched the entire first film, right? Yes, I did. Yes. So how did you feel going into it? How did you feel coming out of it? Um, I was very apprehensive going into it. Um, I thought to myself, I don't know how I'm going to feel about this because I don't like the fact that it's perpetuating this mafia stereotype um not really into gangster movies as a rule that's just never been my thing and i thought all right i'm just going to go into this with as open of a mind as i possibly can and try to put that out of my head and i actually enjoyed the godfather um you know it was good to sit there next to somebody that actually had seen the movie many times, knew a lot of the trivia of the movie, knew some of what was going on. We actually had a wonderful conversation as it was going on about some of the Italian traditions that were being portrayed. I thought it was a great portrayal of Italian culture, minus the mafia part of it. Um, The wedding scene was definitely what an Italian wedding is. Like I saw the packet with the busta, some of the Italian folk music. I thought that was great. I always thought that it was the movie about Vito Corleone. I didn't realize 
that it was actually the story of Michael Corleone. Um, I was blown away by Marlon Brando's performance. I thought he did a great job. I loved the scene in the beginning where he found the stray cat. Sean told me about the stray cat wandering on set. And, you know, Vito Corleone actually had a lot of pathos, I thought, out of all the characters. Um, I was surprised to find myself finding this cold-blooded mafioso actually kind of sympathetic, um, especially with how he died and everything. Um, it was just a really interesting thing. I couldn't believe that my mind was changed by watching this movie. And I think that speaks to the power of this movie because it is considered such a classic of American cinema. And... I went into there. I did not want to see it. I was dreading this and I left it thinking, oh, great. I really want to see part two now. I want to know what happened. I want to know what made Michael how he is and what the backstory is. You know, it's really interesting. I resisted watching The Godfather for a big portion of my life for the same reasons. And for some reason, as I got older, I think I actually kind of addressed with my father. Somebody referenced The Godfather and I sort of didn't understand the reference, and I said, you know, I, actually, Dad, I've never seen it. And my dad, who's a really big defender of our reputation and our portrayal, said to me, you know, honestly, I think this is one of the greatest movies, and I think as an Italian-American, you'll find it's actually very different than your expectations, like you say, Stephanie. And uh, so he got me to watch it not that many years ago, and I, too, was transformed by the first experience with it. And for those in the audience who... I can't imagine there's anybody out there who doesn't know The Godfather, but for a little bit of background, the movie is based on Mario Puzo's 1969 best-selling novel, The Godfather. Puzo was an Italian-American writer who admittedly kind of wrote The Godfather because of what he thought of as its saleability. He had written other novels based on the Italian-American experience that he felt more attached to but didn't commercially succeed the way he needed them to to live off of. And Paramount bought the rights to the movie for like $80,000 and had a really difficult time getting it built because they initially had a couple of non-Italian-American directors attached. They took a gamble on a relatively unknown in Francis Ford Coppola, and he came on, and it was a difficult movie to make. There was a lot of disagreements on casting. Coppola really, really wanted Marlon Brando as Vito Corleone and Al Pacino as Michael Corleone, and those were not popular choices with the studio, but essentially he got to create his vision of the film, and he was very adamant that because there was so much uproar from the Italian-American community at that point, they very much protect the Italian-American image and interweave into the film as much Italian-American authenticity as they could. And obviously the film succeeded incredibly. Uh, for a long time it was the highest-grossing film ever made, it was a winner at the Academy Awards 50 years ago for Best Picture, Best Actor for Marlon Brando, Best Screenplay, uh, seven other nominations. I mean, really, absolutely massive, massive hit before the idea of massive hits were, you know, a dime a dozen in Hollywood. And in 1990, it was selected for preservation by the National Film Registry and the Library of Congress and ranked as the second greatest piece of American cinema behind Citizen Kane. So... This is not just a movie. This is uh, something you know preserved in perpetuity in the Library of Congress as important to American life. But I think for us, it's even more than that. And so I thought it would be interesting for us to kind of dissect our thoughts and opinions on the movie as it relates to our Italian-American experience. I, I don't know what the general consensus is out there in the audience and in the community. I, I feel like, and maybe you guys agree or disagree with this, most people that I interact with in the Italian-American community now 
have nothing but respect and affection for The Godfather. You don't see that many people still hesitant to watch this movie. Is it you guys get that? I think that there's still um I think people that that have a sensitivity toward negative portrayals of Italian Americans in media, I still think that they are anti-Godfather. I don't think that that itself has changed. Really? Yeah, I think so. I think because to many of them it's the um it's the summit of the negative portrayal because it invents yeah. a fake word. Godfather is a fake term. Yeah. Right. So Mario Puzo is trying to find a word to describe the head of this mafia, head of a mafia family. Right. The term Don as a, as a turn of a, of a, of respect, you know, Don Corleone, that doesn't do it. So you can't say, you know, the Don. So he takes the word like Kumbara and, and, and they, they kind of make a, a fake, um, term as the godfather to make that the head of the italian american crime family it's invented in that movie so if you know if you use the term now well he's the godfather whatever that is a term that was completely taken from the movie so um my own personal take on the movie is and i've said this many times number one and i'm not trying to do this to be provocative it's a sicilian movie and i think that the theme of this movie is the integrity of the family because um, Vito Corleone, who's, I guess you would say, the protagonist of the, the entire epic, Vito does what he does because he sees his father killed as a young child um, by the mafia in Sicily. And when he comes to America, he's determined that he will protect his family and he protects his family by creating his own mafia family. But I think that the most poignant piece of the whole movie that that cements that theory that i've just proposed is that after vito takes out don what's his name ferrucci Fenucci, Fenucci. Fenucci. when he takes out don Fenucci, moments later he's able to 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 sneak out of the place where he has done this and he sits on the stoop and he puts his son on his stoop and he says michael your father loves you very very much in sicilian and to me what he did was Fenucci was the threat and so he took out Fenucci, but by taking out Fenucci, he protects his son, but his father and what his mother actually died trying to do for him in Sicily. Um, so I find, and I think it's very much like the Sopranos. It's the story of an Italian family. And in this case, even more so particular a Sicilian family. And you have to jazz it up with the mafia to make it palatable to a general American audience. But at the end of the day, it's the story of the unity of the Italian family. I agree with that. I, I I very much agree that this is a movie about family, and I think that that's what is so relatable to people. Uh, Ro, what's your take on this before we keep it moving? So I don't think I've ever even met a person that says they don't like The Godfather that has actually seen The Godfather. In fact, I've only ever met who like say I don't like The Godfather, and then you're like, Have you seen The Godfather? Like, no, but I know I don't like it because it's like a mafia movie. But so that doesn't do it for me because you cannot see The Godfather and not think it's a tremendous film. Yeah. Just a film. Take out Italian American, take out that it's a mafia movie. It is a fantastic piece of art, no matter how you slice it. The performances are incredible. The writing is incredible. The cinematography is incredible. It is a tremendous, it is, it is one of the greatest films ever made. Yeah. You're never going to change my mind. 
come at me with all your about how the Godfather created so many stereotypes. It really didn't. No, I agree with you. I think it's a. I think from a, from a film lover's perspective, you're hard pressed to find something that is as good at so many aspects of filmmaking. I mean, you know, like you said, the performances, the cinematography, the writing, and I think the 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 way it's shot, the look of that film is so epic. And I I remember one of my favorite appraisals of The Godfather from an Italian American perspective was done in the four-part PBS series, The Italian Americans, a few years back by John Maggio, who's a, been a former guest on the show and a good friend. I got to work with them at NIAF. And I think the way they handled that segment of the documentary was just absolutely incredible. And I oftentimes, as I even watch The Godfather now, think back to their interview with the late Justice Antonin Scalia, who you know was as protective of Italian reputation as anybody. And he goes on to say that when he watched it in 1972 when it came out, he was blown away by the authenticity of the cinematography. He said the lighting reminded him of his memories of his grandmother's house. The plates that they had on the table were the plates from his grandmother's house. The The authenticity was so deep and on so many levels. And I think a lot of that is to the credit of the cinematographers and to the credit of the set dressers and things. I mean, it's, it, it is for all of us, almost like you don't know if it's art imitating life or life imitating art, you know, I think back to my own wedding and everybody dancing the tarantella in a big circle, and you can't help but think about that scene in The Godfather. I mean, you know, it's how much of it is that it was authentic to our experience and how much of it is that it has impacted our experience and become definitional to what we think of as the Italian-American experience. I, I can't answer that, but I do think it sits in the back of everybody's brain and weaves itself into our own memories, you know? It definitely was authentic because Coppola was the guy driving the ship. Yeah. So he knew what were the right plates to put down. So there's a lot of cultural things that you connect with that if you are part of the tribe. Um, I think especially in the New you know, it's 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 a story about uh, New York Italian Americans before the war, basically. So yeah, you can you can smell that that you're dealing with someone who actually lived that and knew that and, and understood that. But I think that a lot of people don't realize that Coppola's grandfather was basically a, a master of writing scripts and music for Italian-American vaudeville. Yeah. For the Senegata scene of, of the turn of the last century. And I think that that's part of this, these theater scenes you see. Some of them were written by him. Uh, did he write Senza Mama? That would have been Domenico Coppola. Believe it or not, I think, I think Senza Mama was written by Ernie Rossi's grandfather was it really what yeah because the the way i understand it now i could be wrong francis coppola's grandfather or father whoever it was did write a bunch of the music for the movie along with nino rota who wrote the score and the famous godfather theme and uh uh brucia la terra the song played throughout but from my conversation with ernie as i understood it his father or grandfather whoever wrote it or produced it, owned the rights to that song because it was from a, a Shinajata Neapolitan American theater production and actually gifted them to Coppola for use in the second movie. And that's a very much loved scene and all of the dramatics. And it's it's the only known, I think, instance on film of uh, one of these Shinajata, uh, Italian-American versions at least, because obviously there's a lot of Naples, but out of one of these Shinajata plays uh, on American film. So it's... Uh, it's an important scene, but you're right that there's so many 
levels of authenticity contributed to making this movie really speak to our experience, you know? Uh, my favorite scene is Finucci's assassination. In the second one. In the second one, because I absolutely love, I love the scenes in the second movie because the ones that harken back to their initial immigrant experience, because I think it's just so accurate. Yeah. You know, the fact that you have a New York City tenement where they had, you know, internal windows because the lighting was so poor. You know, there's many of us who remember who saw the last death rows before those buildings came down. Yeah. You know, the fact that he brought his wife home a pair out of season, which was a fantastic treat. Uh, it's just just the eating scenes. And I think the procession. Yeah. Uh, that's Steve LaRocca's procession, our dear friend Steve LaRocca. That's the same. The um, the San Rocco di Potenza Society. I think that 1887 they were formed. Yeah, they're still going. On the Low East Side in St. Joachim's Church. And that's the statue that comes out. You know, the, the, it's off because St. Rocco celebrated August 16th. And that's obviously uh, a winter or fall scene, just from the, the background of what you see. But I think it's just so well done, and it's just so accurate. I can't imagine, if anyone asked me, if they wanted to understand what the world looked like for those immigrants who came between, let's say, 1880 and 1920, that movie hits the ball out of the park Yeah, to understand their world. I actually, I think I like the second godfather more than the first and i think i like it for the same reasons you do which is i can imagine if we were able to find some sort of like uh time capsule with sound and color video from that period you could run it against the scenes set in the early 1900s in godfather part two and it would look and feel exactly the same i really do i it just seems so perfectly crafted that it's almost like to me it gives us a piece of history that we don't normally have, which I know sounds crazy, but it feels like it's part of everybody's history. But I think that the brilliance of it is because I see it from a tribal perspective, right? So I look at it and it's almost like looking into to a time machine for what the Italian-American immigrant world of New York looked at. At first, I would say in part two, the 1880 to 1920 period. And then in part one, those years immediately following the war. And I think it's probably our last shot of doing that because we could not recreate that today. No. Because the characters are just not there. You know, you talk about the characters, right? And, and you know, Roe points out that the writing, uh, obviously it wins Best Adapted Screenplay in, in the 1972 Oscars, Coppola and Mario Puzo. Um the writing, the characters, the acting. Think about the character arcs, character experiences in the first movie, at least, uh, but really through all of them. And I think what also speaks to members of our tribe, if you will, is the story of Michael Corleone. And I actually think his wife, Kay, played by Diane Keaton, who's, for me, not a very likable character, this sort of unwitting outsider, She's like the um, the running billboard for marry your own kind. Yes, exactly, exactly. Wow. That's what. That's Wait, kind of where. Careful, I, yeah. careful. No, uh, girl to an Irish guy. No, it's all right. Wait, stop it's it. All you got you got your few minutes with the rain. You got your minutes. You're not listening. Go back. Go back to where you are. But Kay, but Kay could hang. Like Kay yeah. put on a good. Like she lasted a long time. 
She tried to play by the rules. And then at a certain point, she'd had enough. She's like, enough with you crazy Italians. Like, I can't do this. No, I can't stand. I can't. Everything about Kay, I can't stand. Why? Yeah, see, I, 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 I maybe maybe it's maybe it's, it's a guy thing. I am with Pat. I, I cannot stand that character. And I think of Michael Corleone, too, as a, I don't want to say a, an empathetic character, but there's a, there's a certain, um, and this is my, like, very deeply engaged with my Italianness sort of bias. There's something pathetic about his, you know, I, in the, look, the movie's supposed to portray, right, that he's this assimilating soldier, war hero, comes back, he's noble, he's staying out of the ugly side of his family business, and he gets drawn back in over and over to the point where in The Godfather 3, which, uh, I, you know, I've only seen parts of, it's not considered nearly a classic, and it was made 15 years after the other two, um, he actually says, I, every time I try to get away, they pull me back in, right? That's his whole story. Is He's this reluctant Italian-American, almost, and, and he's running away from it, and he's got this American wife and, you know, this uniform on at the wedding, and he's sort of outside of the tribe. He's, like, escaped. And I know that that's supposed to create sympathy for the character. I kind of find it pathetic, this need to escape from who you are. I, I don't see that as a sort of good progress. And for me, maybe I cast some of that blame on this character of, of Kay, the, the wife, and I'm with Pat. I just don't find her very redeeming because she's there with a... Um, yeah, obviously she doesn't want her husband involved in a life of crime, but it's almost like she confl- she's the non-Italian viewer who's conflating the life of crime with life in an Italian family to me. Does that make any sense? Everything about her annoys me. I, I can't I I think that I find her to be the soap that he attempts to whitewash himself with. Yeah, I kind of agree with that. Uh, OK, that's fair. You know, so I, I, I'm embarrassed of who I am and I'm going to marry you. And because you're Kate Adams from New England, that's going to whitewash because the real the real love match was Apollonia. Right. That should have been the happy ever after. I mean, did they even know each other? <laughs> they could like barely communicate. I don't know. I doubt that. Because like, they compensated. They compensated through lust, what they lacked in communication. All right, fine. It was it was the sixties. Fine. <laughs> it was the sixties. Sorry, the fifties. Fine. Oh, fine. Now, having just watched it, I felt that Apollonia's character was too one-dimensional. I didn't get to know her. Uh, I felt bad for her, but she just she came off as very flat. Stephanie, they blew her up. She didn't have that much of a chance. The girl didn't have that much Okay, she got blown up, yes, but she wasn't on enough. Like, they didn't have enough of ways to communicate with each other. She was a very flat character. She only served to advance plot. Hold on. Stop. 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 Their relationship had a great chance of survival because they could not communicate. (laughs) (laughs) That was what they had going for them. Thank you. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. But I have a funny Apollonia story. So my mother's friend john you you know her actually cavaliere josephine maietta which oh, yeah. many of you yes. guys know she would never be upset that i'm telling the story was originally cast as apollonia get out of here really i'm serious yeah she wouldn't she spoil you that was the whole thing come on wait a minute i'm serious yeah, she said her father wouldn't allow her to take a clothes off yes yes her father would disown her if she did the nudity so she gave up the part. So for those who don't know, 
Josephine Maeda. She's got an amazingly successful Italian language radio show at Ohio University. She's the first ever National Italian American Foundation Italian Teacher of the Year. She is uh, like the Energizer Bunny of Italian American events. She's at everything. She's always it was just a wonderful, wonderful lady. I had no idea that she was ever an actress, let alone cast to play this role. You have to be the only Italian VIP in the New York metro area who has never heard that story. <laughs> I'm going to have to ask her to tell me next. You have to be 100%. Wow. Imagine that. I, I got to ask her about that. Yeah, we should have her on the show to talk about it, I think. I, I, we should have her on the show anyway because she's great. But absolutely, yes, that would be that would be fantastic. So they ask me to take off of my shirt, and I say, okay. But then I go home, and I tell my father, and he say, I'm going to kill you. And I say, no, thank you. <laughs> I'll tell you what, to her credit, I would never have assumed she was even old enough to be in that movie. Oh, she's going to love you if you say that. <laughs> so I have to tell her that in person. That has to be the first thing you say. First thing you <laughs> say. That's absolutely right. No, she, that would be a great, be great conversation to have both on air and off air. I don't know. Apollonia, to me, I, I think this is going to be me putting way too much um, pretension around the movie. But I actually think Apollonia, for me, feels like something I experienced growing up, which is this Italian-American allure of Italy. You know, this place that you clearly feel you belong to because you've got an immigrant's version of the culture. You've got a, a, a you know an upbringing and a comfort, and obviously in his case, a familiarity with the Sicilian language and this and that. And it's obviously completely different than your own experience, especially the character Michael Corleone growing up in a family with resources in the suburbs, right? We see we see the house is this great compound and they have all the nice things and blah, blah, blah. And then there's this almost feral Sicilian woman, right? And he's drawn to it. But like you point out, can't really communicate well. There's this, as Pat says, kind of lust. But it's almost like that raw energy attachment to Italy uh, for the Italian-American, in, in my mind, that is signified in the relationship with Apollonia. And I, and I experienced that growing up because I always had this sense of, like, I want to be here. And it took me a long time to recognize and accept that the here that I wanted was this raw Italian energy and culture that was not necessarily real, right? You couldn't really engage it. It was a modern country. It was a different country. I don't know. I, I always felt some sort of empathy around that relationship from my own relationship to the Italy of my imagination. That was Apollonia to me. Is that too pretentious? Uh, no, I don't think so. But I also think that it's a film that was showing a very distant Sicily that was not that far away or distant to America, but that was still kind of lingering on in Italy. Yeah. But I mean, I wonder if a, a Sicilian kid saw it today what they would recognize as familiar and what they would see as as very much a, a relic of the past. But, you know, another thing that that impresses not I don't, I don't know if impression is the right word, but I find is noteworthy is the impact it had on organized crime. Yeah. I mean, so many people have said that, you know, New York mafia families or mafia families around America try to model some of their behavior on that, picked up some of the terminology, started to use like terminology, like the word Godfather, because I mean, I, I would imagine it was the first major, it was the first motion picture, first film, te television show, I, I would say first visual art that depicted 
their lifestyle. And I think showed, maybe I would say more accurately depicted their lifestyle and gave a little bit into their mind of why they did what they did and how they thought the way they did. You know, it's funny you say that because I was thinking about this episode over Sunday macaroni with my family and I was having a glass of wine with my dad and I was telling him we were going to be talking about this and I said, you know, dad, you were, my dad was uh, in high school when this movie came out and I said, you know, what was the reaction for you coming from this heavily Italian enclave? You know, how did people, he said, you know, there were certainly protests, obviously the Italian-American Civil Rights League, as we discussed in our two-part episode uh, on Joe Colombo and the Italian-American Civil Rights League with author Don Capria back in episode 193 and 194. You can hear them in our archives. But uh, the Italian-American Civil Rights League was active in protesting this from the minute that the motion picture rights were purchased by Paramount. But for him, he said it was the first time he felt throughout his community that there was a piece of motion picture artwork that became kind of a must-see. And he thought, he kind of felt two reactions, one of which was he said he felt like he left the theater, and he remembers his family actually going together, right? And my grandfather was hypersensitive about portrayals, but they all got together and went to the movies together to see it, which was a rare event for them. And he said he left, and he remembered looking around at the obviously non-Italian members of the audience and having them kind of, he felt like they were looking back at him with some sort of trepidation, and like they were seeing a community that they really had never seen before in any portrayal for the first time. And he said he kind of recalled that energy, but he also said he felt that it was a, in a way a setback because a lot of young Italian-Americans who might not otherwise have pursued, because don't forget, in 1969, 1972, the American mafia was, you know, you'd had the Kefauver hearings, you'd had all of this expose in the 50s. It was not at, uh, let's say, peak strength. It might have been a diminishing organization to begin with and then you have a lot of these young guys who might not otherwise have pursued a life like this who pursued the glorified uh let's say cinematic version of it and again like you know life starts to imitate art you wonder if there was a whole generation of guys who went into this organized crime because they saw this version of it in the movie i i I can't argue with that you know yeah but i i guess only someone who lived in brooklyn in those years could make that response yeah you'll never know we'll never know you guys know that the godfather is one of no Romano's favorite films really yeah she wants to watch it every christmas every christmas every christmas yeah we watch the godfather why yeah why she just loves it i think it's one of the only like films she's really seen from beginning to end and she it's it's i think it's been on so much that it's so recognizable that every once in a while she goes Met to Godfather, and she wants to watch it. <laughs> Met to Godfather. I, I don't, I mean, I don't know anybody in my family who's not a fan of the Godfather, even though it's got you know, violence and I think it's... Let, let me ask you a question, John. Yeah. Do you agree that it's a Sicilian film and not an Italian film? That's a tough one. You know, the, the side of me that analyzes this stuff says... I don't know what Puzo was. I, I don't know where his family came from. I don't think he... I think Puzo was from Campania Basilicata. He was not Sicilian. Yeah, I think so. Coppola was from Basilicata. You know, I I don't know. I, I think it's pretty Italian in its morality tale. I think that's pretty universal, particularly, you know, Southern Italian, but really all Italian. This idea of 
family above all else, and even um, the insularity that's woven into it. Uh, you know that that to me is very Italian. I think there's different patinas on it in different regional aspects. Some like you know some communities, some versions in in Italy, some places in Italy are are more known for their boisterousness, and others for their sort of um, stoicism. I, I I think that that's very Sicilian about it, this idea that there's nothing over the top here. And I think that's also what makes it easy for people to like, you know. Some of these movies that are made before or since are so gaudily over the top, even in their characterizations, that they, even the best of them, veer into stereotype. But this one, it's hard to veer into stereotype. It's it's a very stoic movie, and the characters are all so under uh, underplayed, I guess, uh, is the for lack of a better word so so subtle you know and and I do think that's either by direction from Coppola or maybe maybe that's the Sicilian kind of uh, how I characterize the Sicilian imprint on it but I think I think that's what makes it easy to fall in love with is that it's very underplayed nothing is over the top yeah it's it's definitely restrained. It's restrained, which is to me is very Sicilian, but maybe that's just a, a coincidence. But like, think about Goodfellas, which is a, a great movie. But those characters, the way they're screaming at each other and talking to each other, it's a different time. It represents a different time. It's a different story. But it's so over the top, it can veer easily into stereotypes. But The Godfather doesn't have that. Well, I, I've said this to people for a long time. The Godfather is a Sicilian movie, but... The Sopranos is a Neapolitan one. Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. I could see, I could see that. I mean, it's the story about Neapolitans in New Jersey. Why is it Neapolitan? Because it's a circus. Yeah. It's a constant circus that doesn't end. Dramatic, yelling, screaming. So I, I think that it's... um For people, I know there's so many people out there who listen to this podcast who are trying to understand their identity or the parts of their identity that they derive from their ancestors. And there's stuff that you get living in the New York, New Jersey area, especially when we were growing up, that you wouldn't get had you not been here. And I think that if you want to understand the difference between a Sicilian and a Neapolitan, it's the difference between The Godfather and The Sopranos. It's very true. Yeah. I, I didn't watch The Sopranos until much, much later, until my wife, who's an Italian citizen and a daughter of Italian immigrants. But my wife's not traditionally sort of familiar with this stuff. Her family came later and... But she watched it and enjoyed The Sopranos when it when it actually aired, and she encouraged me to watch it. And uh, I thought it was better than I expected, less kind of offensive than I expected. But it was just to me rife with stereotypes. Like every time they they used the Italian language in there, it felt like it was enforced to be stereot. It was it was put there to add some kind of authenticity that was lacking. Whereas in The Godfather, maybe because it was made at a different time when the actors did understand, you know. They, they they were raised by immigrants or people who spoke like that, whatever it is. There was just a, a level of authenticity there that made it hard for me to find anything offensive. As a matter of fact, the only time I ever kind of cringe a little bit in The Godfather is the leave the gun, take the cannolis line. And in reading about the making of The Godfather, I actually learned that Richard Castellano, who is a very accomplished character actor, uh, it was not written in the script, that line. He He threw that in there as an ad lib and they kept it because they thought it was so funny. So uh, you can't get more authentic and less stereotypy than a, an ad lib from a, an accomplished actor, you know? Yeah, but I, I, 
I'll tell you why I think that um, uh, in defense of the Sopranos and, and the use of language, the Sopranos, if, 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 if you take the Godfather's films in the early 70s, right, there's people still around who are old, but who came to America in the 1890s. By the time the Sopranos has come, you're already removed. You already have an entrenched Italian-American population who's lost the regional languages, which was the language at the time, right? So if you, I mean, if you take the Italian-American comedians that were popular in the 70s, right? The Lou Carey Bacala and the Pat Coopers, their punchlines were in Italian because the whole audience got it. Yeah. That wouldn't work today. That's why the um, the Rosina and uh, the Rosina Parmigiano comedy routine that came out of Canada in the late 90s. That's why it only, appear, uh, only appealed to a, a subset of Italian-Americans because it was the people who could understand the language. Yeah. But if you listen, I love listening to the Lou Carey Bacala recordings of the early 70s because he, he speaks in English, tells a joke, punchlines in Italian, and the entire room erupts in laughter because they all get it. Yeah. So I think that that's, that's part of it. Yeah, I think it's probably safe to say that we're amongst a small population of Italian-Americans that still utilizes the regional languages, the kind of historic Italian-American pigeon. I have two Sicilians in a class this year. I can actually speak Italian to them. I told the kid, I And that's a great note for us to pause the conversation a little bit, take a break, and we're going to come back next week with the second half of this conversation that has been a real joy and pleasure. I hope it's obvious in the recording for all of us to have, and we're looking forward to the second half where we get a little bit deeper into not just the making of this film and some of our favorite parts of it, but also the impact that we feel it's had on our Italian-American community over these 50 long years since the release of The Godfather. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week with part two of our episode. Ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-ra-